seems like one of the main things the Buddha is saying, if not the main thing, is that we human beings suffer a great deal and a lot of that suffering is unnecessary. Uh, His mission was uh, to help us not suffer uh, in such an unnecessary way. That is, pain is inescapable if you have a body, of course. That body must go through the natural process. That everything that, that lives must go through that process. But along the way, uh, what's being said in, over and over in different ways is that because we don't understand, because we're ignorant, we tend to suffer tremendously. And of course, we do it to each other. We bring each other into it. Uh, it seems pretty obvious to me. And also the remedy. If ignorance is the main source of our suffering, and one meaning of ignorance is to ignore, uh, then what if we turn that around instead of ignoring? And ignoring what? I think it's how we live. Ignoring ourselves. Although we seem to be preoccupied with ourselves and this endless writing and critique of that, self-centered, self-preoccupied, so you mean more of that? No, that is, of course, the problem. It's more a, uh, instead of ignoring how we actually live, what our actual experience is, what if we turn that around and started to pay attention? Instead of ignoring the moods, feelings, mental states, reactions that people have, our reactions, and so forth. And so the practice very much is pointing to something that exists in all the great traditions, philosophic, religious, of know thyself. Everyone agrees. Know thyself. It's wherever you look. Almost every university, any university I've known, has it on at least one building, some form of it. And yet there aren't long lines of people queuing up to do it, except here. (laughs) Makes you wonder. Maybe they have a reason of why they're not doing it. Uh, but he didn't just say, uh, know thyself, know yourself, uh, go at it and uh, check in with me in 15 years and let me know how it turns out. Actually left a framework for us, a framework of, th- of thinking and also methods uh, to help launch that project of self-understanding, self-acquaintance to begin with in the most ordinary sense. And the, what I'd like to <clears throat> spend more time on during this retreat than I have in the past, although I've always taught it, and those of you who've uh, come here for a while know the teaching on choiceless awareness. We always mention it. We give perhaps a guided meditation or two for those who want to do it. It's typically towards the end of the retreat. And it has to do with Uh, dropping pretty much all the methods and finally all the methods, all the techniques and just if there's any practice, it's uh, an odd one, it's learning how to be yourself, to just sit there and be be yourself and see what that is as you see the experiences uh, pass through you, your own experience and the challenge is to 
be choiceless about it in the sense of not having an agenda as to what should be there, not making choices as to what you want to know or don't want to know, and not that choices are all bad. And also choices in the sense of, of being judgmental. Uh, I like this, I don't like that. Preferences, picking and choosing. On this retreat, I'd like to go into it with a little bit more depth, but I feel in order to do that, uh, there has to be an agreed upon or shared foundation uh, because I, it can be taught and is taught sometimes, I think rarely, and I haven't seen it work too well, uh, where you, you just start from day one, the teacher will just say, okay, just, just sit and see what's there. Uh, usually there are a lot of what are called preliminary practices that help you, and those preliminary practices take years, and some of them are quite arduous. Um, maybe there are some people who, uh, through the um, sense of urgency, understanding the, the need for uh, the urgency of self-discovery, that unless we see deeply into ourselves, we just keep repeating the same unsatisfactoriness over and over and over again. I mean, the human race is, seems to be doing a good deal of that. There may be some who can do that. That is the strength of sometimes a teacher, the presence of a teacher, but inevitably teachers leave and die. So that's a limitation of that approach. But also, some people are on fire with this urge to understand, and that can take you quite a ways. I started with one such teacher, but after a while concluded that uh, I needed more structure, more help, more discipline, more training uh, to work with this mind. But all along, it's what I've always loved, is to do nothing, the art of doing absolutely nothing. Uh, and I've done many, many methods and many traditions, and I think the three main Buddhist traditions all have some version of this with their own characteristic languages, whether you call it Dzogchen or Shikantaza or Choiceless Awareness or Maha Vipassana. Sometimes it's not called anything special. Maybe that's best of all. Uh, and so I, I would like to, this evening, set out uh, briefly uh, sort of a review and guide uh, guide, some guidelines of what we're doing uh, so that you understand where it's leading to or where it can lead to. It's really up to you. You may not want to go in this direction. That's fine. In choiceless awareness, what you're learning to do is to let go of the supports that you have, to let go of uh, dramatically the motivational structure that is uh, taken for granted as normal in our life, which is to go after what you want so that you can get it and be happier. And I'm not saying that that's totally invalid in certain realms. In short, willful action, which takes tremendous energy, uh, where, you tr where you do certain things to improve the situation. You act upon life in very dramatic and obvious ways. Um, We've all done it in our work, in school. And there are traditions which have that same emphasis. 
uh, in one Zen tradition that I practiced in, uh, interview time would come and you would literally race to get an interview. It would be, and there were, not everyone would get one. And you'd get up from your cushion, sometimes I, I've seen this, people whose legs were still asleep fall down, people would trip over them uh, to, get the to get this incredible interview. Some of you seem to be running in the opposite direction. What do I do to not get an interview around here? Or uh, I had uh, an early teacher of Vipassana who would, uh, we were doing breath awareness, same practice that you're doing now. And in an interview, he'd say, uh, during this last sitting, uh, about how many times did your mind wander away from the breath? Oh, about 14. Cut it down to 10. Okay, <laughs> and I was good at that kind of thing. I'd had years of practice in the school system, university system. I come back, how was it? I got it down to nine. <laughs> Very good, seven. And it was a certain kind of energy that was familiar to me. Uh, and it, uh, that kind of, uh, and sometimes mentioning of uh, how other yogis are doing, and uh, really, it's taking that long? I mean, just using a kind of what Karata was sometimes called Stone Age psychology. <laughs> uh, it may not mean anything to you, but it's funny to me anyway. <laughs> and it's so hot that pretty much, I, I figured I could say anything tonight and you'll <laughs> just be grateful to have your mind off yourself for at least 45 minutes. So I'm not saying that this, that this choiceless awareness where uh, you learn how to relax and do nothing. It's very passive and very active at the same time. That is, you don't intervene, you don't interfere, you don't tamper with what's happening, but you maintain a high level of alertness. Okay. My own experience has been that this is a, a practice that requires or is, is most fruitful after you've done a fair amount of structured practice. Again, this is not the only way to come to it, but it's what I know. And so uh, we start off, even with the breath, you know, you could study breath awareness and the, there's a psychology in a sense in back of the instructions, even within different schools of Buddhism, even within different schools of Theravadan Buddhism, even within the same Thai forest tradition. There are different attitudes towards the breath, your relationship to it. And here, as you know, it's to allow the breathing to flow naturally and to be, be reminded of that over and over and over again, to not control the breath. And you start becoming more sensitive as to how you do control the breath. And little by little, it starts to fall away, and uh, there's a kind of surrender to the breathing just as it is. But that's not the only way to teach it. There are some approaches where uh, if the breath is not calm, uh, then you kind of uh, guide it a bit. It's not exactly the pranayama of yoga, but a, a little bit in that direction to kind of make the breath, if it's too shallow and it doesn't feel right, then you can lengthen it and so forth. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just that, uh, in a sense, each method is an organic whole. If you just take it out of context uh, and compare it with someone else or another school, it's not really fair because it's doing a certain job within an organic whole. So here, when, when you're encouraged to be aware of the breathing just as it is, to allow it, and also the non-judgmental uh, connection to when the mind slips off the breath. Uh, 
to simply uh, see that and to ease back gracefully. All of our language is kind of softening, easing. Uh, I don't have any more synonyms, but you know, in that direction. To me, at any rate, it's getting you ready to go well beyond breathing. Because if you can learn to really permit each breath to be exactly what it is, to do its job, so that would mean uh, to allow an exhalation to fully empty itself, to really do that, to not in any way interfere with that. And then if you can allow that, then the challenge becomes, because these are this is, this is a re-education. We're learning how to do this. And many of us have had so much experience uh, doing things to make things better. And this is, of course, a kind of doing. It's very, very subtle. If you can really let the exhalation really be an exhalation, then the challenge becomes, can you be present to fully receive what we call an inhalation? And then as that runs its course, can you let it run its course? So one of the primary skills we're learning is how to receive our experience, the experience of this moment without separation. How to receive our experience. That's what the practice is, or this kind of training over and over in different ways. Learning how to receive our experience, no matter what that experience is. The experience of this moment, to receive it without any separation. And if we can learn that on the breathing, perhaps we can learn that in terms of fear, loneliness, anger, etc. The breath as I see it, uh, it's a metaphor as well. I mean, it's it's used in so many ways. Uh, For example, it's often referred to as a concentration object. And it is that. That, to me, trivializes it. Maybe it's just the language. It's a concentration object like practicing the scales in piano or dance steps or something. And I guess it is that. But remember that that which you're contemplating, namely the breathing, uh, if it weren't there for you to contemplate, you wouldn't be there. In other words, you're contemplating life and death itself. We're literally hanging by a breath, and the Buddha used that as a technique to help develop samvega, this sense of the urgency that we don't have forever. And so, what do you want to do? How do you want to spend your days on this strange planet? And so, the breath can be used that way. It can be used to calm the mind. Um, It's also a very, for me, a very powerful metaphor for the entire practice. All of this will be, I think you'll see, more relevant when we get to the actual Uh, instructions on choiceless awareness and more detailed uh, suggestions about it. Um, Fully exhaling so that you can really inhale is uh, a pretty good metaphor for the entire practice. Let's take our life here at IMS. It's really a full life, much more full than the language perhaps credits it with being. Uh, Mainly what we feature is the sitting and walking. But the truth is it has the elements of ordinary life in it just as as if you were anywhere else. This is a little society where we wash and eat and dress, go to the bathroom. We have little jobs. 
some jobs are not so little. Um, we're with people. Sometimes we like them. Sometimes we're irritated by them. We, there are rules. It's rule-governed. On and on. It's a piece of life. It, when we create a retreat as if it's only sitting and walking, which we do in effect, even though everyone says, be mindful throughout the day, um, I think we have to put more energy into that because I, after trying to do it for many years, both in my own practice and in teaching, it seems to me that what I see all around is that is uh, perhaps for certain reasons the most difficult thing to do, that is to truly practice in such a way that it's a way of living. It isn't restricted to a particular posture. Somehow, over and over again, we, get, uh, we tend to feature certain forms, the retreat form, the sitting form most notably. And most of life is not spent doing that, even if you're a retreat walla. So where does the breath fit in here? Let's say you finish a sitting. When the sitting is finished, can you fully exhale it? That means that sitting is over, completely over. Can you let it go and inhale the next situation? Well, you can't really do that unless you've exhaled the one you just finished. If you're still caught up in what's happening in the hall, for one reason or another, positive, negative, planning, worrying, etc., and you go to your yogi job, uh, you can't fully inhale the yogi job because you haven't fully exhaled the sitting meditation. And if the yogi job is one that you're not particularly enamored with, then that's even another reason where a uh, factor that contributes to not being able to fully receive washing the dishes, fully receive sweeping, fully receive chopping vegetables. And so if you look at it from this point of view, it's a guideline for not only the practice here, but how to live. That is to do each thing, each situation has an intelligence built into it. And clear seeing has to do with seeing what what your situation is, what is correct action in this situation for me right here and right now. Now often it's obvious, you're in a car, drive. Even that gets complicated. Now we have, we talk on the phone, there's one state that has banned that, you can't drive and talk on the phone because there are more accidents. So force us to what? Have fewer phone conversations or to get it all done and exhale it and then drive? I don't know. But it's a very good guide to living because what it suggests is living wholeheartedly and fully. It's not limited to IMS. If you're doing sitting, then that's the most important thing on the planet. Why? Because that's what you're doing right now. That's how you manifest being alive. If in the next moment uh, you're cleaning the bathroom, then that's the most important event in the universe. Because that's how you, the life is being expressed through you in that moment. If you squander it, then you're not fully alive in that moment. If you have enough of those moments where you're separated from what you're doing, you're not fully alive. And the practice is that. The Buddha is a fully awakened one. In order to do that, we have to fully exhale, we have to fully inhale, and so don't underestimate what you can learn from the breath. I've been following it for a fair number of years, and it's not, bo it's not boring yet. 
Thich Nhat Hanh says he's been practicing for 50 years with the breath, and it's still, there are new things that he learns. Not necessarily ideas that can be transferred, but subtleties. Now, in choiceless awareness, the whole art of that uh, is to be present with whatever turns up and to give your full attention to that simply because it's there. That's, this is in, this, let's say, the sitting practice. If you have no agenda, then there's a certain uncertainty. If even the breath is not featured, then you're just there. And you don't know what's going to turn up from moment to moment. That's a fact. You may think you know. You may have wishes. And so we're learning how to live with uncertainty. We're learning how to fully be with what turns up. With, what's there, with, what, with what life presents us with. Now, is that any different than the challenge that's facing us, not in sitting and in the mind, but all day long? And so it's uh, a way of learning how to be wholehearted in what you're doing and then very supple and flexible to be able to let it go so that you can be available for what's next, whether it's hugging your child, driving a car, playing tennis, sitting, giving a talk, whatever. And as you know, that's not easy to do, but that's what the practice is. Now, uh, in this approach, uh, as, as some of you know, I use Anapanasati as a method. And so the breath is used to help uh, render the mind fit. If self-knowing, self-understanding, paying attention, uh, seeing into and through our ignorance, uh, perhaps that's what will help us the most, uh, then it's obvious that uh, it's a kind of re-education. We're, ha we're being asked to unlearn certain kinds of activities that don't work, that produce suffering, and to learn how to uh, live in such a way that is beneficial for ourselves and others. And how can you learn that unless you pay attention? And how can you pay attention unless the mind is clear? If you can see and, li and listen, here seeing is not limited to physical eyes, then you, have the, then you can learn. You can learn from what you see and hear and touch everything, all the senses and so forth. And so the breath is also, in this sense, being used to help us refine and develop the capacity of the mind to receive experience. If one of the main things we're learning is how to uh, receive this moment without separation, in other words, be fully there, uh, then we have to have the capacity to do that. And as we know, we vary tremendously in our capacity to receive our own experience. Some of us have very little capacity to receive our own experience. We've spent years avoiding ourselves. And forget about comparing us with anyone else. We, all, we see that the practice enlarges the range of what you're able to experience. Your capacity to um, intimately experience the content of a, of a given moment increases the range and the depth of, the, of what is in you that starts to come out, uh, more and more can be received for what it is, seen very, very clearly, and then let go of. So in order to do that, it's helpful uh, 
uh, if the body can sit still, if the body can be reasonably healthy. And we all face the struggle to keep a body healthy. It's difficult at times. But the body learns, little by little, it can learn how to sit. It can learn how to be steady, not pushed around by what comes up in our experience. More and more unwavering in its ability to do what? To examine ourselves. And the Buddha left a, a simple framework, the body, feelings, and the mind, to begin with. To get to know this body, whether it's through the four foundations of mindfulness, or Anapanasati, um, seeing the body in the body is how the Buddha phrased it. That means not as an idea, not as an image. It's not body image, but it's the uh, the the bodiness. It's inner seeing of experience that it's life in the form of a body that is constantly communicating with us and learning how to receive that the different feelings we have, because as we receive the world through our sense organs, we receive it in ways that uh, sometimes feel pleasant and desirable and other times uh, unpleasant, something of, that we want to escape from or push away, and a, a lot of the time just neutral. Let's focus on that one. Uh, Every year, for as far back as I can remember, I've used a certain uh, koan, uh, which I learned a long time ago in Korea. And it's been tremendously helpful. And I know some of you have heard me say it year after year. And maybe you wonder why I keep saying it. Uh, perhaps it's because we don't do it. See, it's not a matter of accumulating a lot of information in terms of Dharma, filling up your notebook with what uh, this one said and that one said and the Buddha said and Nagarjuna said. Uh, it's knowing a small number of basic things and then really doing it. At any rate, this koan, which uh, is always appropriate during the summer, and that's why I use it, but it's, I would say this summer it's really appropriate. We've already had uh, one casualty, one person has left the retreat. Uh, the reason being given is the heat. Perhaps it's on your mind as well. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say it. I, but uh, this is not a missionary endeavor. If you want to leave, we'll help you pack. <laughs> we want free people here who, on their own uh, cognizance, uh, want to subject themselves to this heat and this. A meditator goes to, up to a teacher and says, because uh, monasteries in Asia are either very hot or very cold. They don't have and many of them still don't, uh, ways of correcting for the temperature. How do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? And the teacher said, you should go to that place where there's no hot or cold. Whoa. How do you get there? What is that place? And that's been answered in many ways over the centuries. One answer has been hot Buddha, cold Buddha. Another answer has been kill hot, kill cold. Let's just take those two. Let's take the second one, kill hot, kill cold. What is it we're killing? I thought Buddhism is this gentle, soft, kind religion. This choiceless awareness sounds like it's cut from the same cloth of that. Uh, kill here means kill the concept hot. 
kill the concept cold. That is, what's happening is really happening. Our body is a certain temperature and is put through certain physiological responses. There's no escaping that. And it can be very unpleasant. Beads of sweat that pour down us are really happening. So let's say mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of bodily feelings. Uh, we've had some unpleasant bodily feelings that we've had a wonderful opportunity to be mindful of, haven't we? Okay. Now, wisdom, uh, the wisdom of this particular uh, teaching, this koan, is saying that, uh, and here the answer of hot Buddha, cold Buddha, means that even the Buddha, the Buddha himself, on a day like this, sits and sweats. And on a cold day, the Buddha sits and shivers. The difference is that that's all that's happening. It's just sweating, just hot, just cold. It isn't creating a whole psychological superstructure, a whole melodrama around and out of the obvious heat. That is true, the unpleasantness of the heat. And as you begin to practice mindfulness of the body, you begin to be able to tell the difference between the life of the body and what the mind makes up about that body, and it's an enormous help. Not only does the body get hot and cold, but it gets old. Have you noticed? It starts to age, and it gets sick sometimes. And not only that, it starts to die, all of us. And what the Buddha's the challenge is, is it possible to have a clear mind in a hot body? Not easy. I, I'm not putting myself there, believe me. Can we have a clear mind in an aging body, a clear mind in a sick or even a dying body? Uh, certainly, practice my own, whatever experience I've had, the answer is a very clear yes. Either in degree or perhaps for uh, a number of people in each generation to really uh, be free of the life of the body while fully living in it and through it. But just a little hint like that can make uh, your practice in the heat a little easier, as you even as a reflection, just pausing for a moment and seeing, well, what have I, have I made it worse than it has to be? Of all times of the year, when I get a retreat, it's my only vacation of the year. I come up here. I knew I should have done it in there. But then in the fall, they have three-month retreat. You can't go up there. I can't get away for six weeks. Why do they even have the three-month retreat? It's not fair. It's undemocratic. <laughs> You're here, this is it. And this is what we've got. Hot weather of a certain temperature and your body is a certain way. And then direct mind states, seeing uh, the mind of greed, the mind of hatred, the mind of confusion. Uh, seeing those mind states arise and pass away over and over. And in Anapanasati you do it in conjunction with conscious breathing in that method. Uh, as you breathe in and breathe out, the awareness being grounded in the breathing, in conscious breathing, you're at the same time aware of what's happening to the body, or what's happening to feelings, what's happening to the mind itself. You needn't use the breath as a kind of good friend supporting you, accompanying you. Uh, it, for, for some, it doesn't work out so well. They prefer to just straight awareness without the breath at that point, using the breath to calm down and then dropping it. There are many differences, 
and that's fine. You, you have to try it to find out. And for some people, it's a tremendous help. As the breathing and all that's other than breath becomes a unified field of attention. So it's not trying to attend to two things. The conscious breathing is happening all the time. Breath is happening all the time. And it's in the midst of your experience. The breath is always part of that experience. So it, at a certain point, it becomes very, very natural. And the attention to the breath is cultivating serenity and peace at the same time that you're looking deeply into what's happening and perhaps discerning, in, a discerning insight can arise from it, beginning to see. And that's the next realm that the Buddha suggested. Uh, I would say, to begin with, and it varies from person to person, first we have to calm down, learn how to observe. That's no small thing. To begin with, our observations are often colored with our psyche. And we think we're observing what our experience is, but we're observing it through the eyes of the past, through our likes and dislikes and fears. And little by little, we get on to ourselves. We see it's not a clear mirror. We have a, a very strong preferences. And that isn't real. Real mindfulness has no thought in it. It's, a, it's just a clear mirror. But it, maybe we started that way, but when you come here, uh, you may find that your mirror is often blotched with all kinds of urges and wounds from the past that color our ability to see the present clearly. Little by little, that falls away. But then there's something else that even prevents this ability to receive the moment without separation. And that's the self-consciousness of the meditator, the observer, the yogi. There's someone who's trying to do the practice well, who's trying to be aware of the breath, who's really doing the walking meditation properly, who's following the precepts. And that self-consciousness is very subtle, but that too is like a thin film between you and, wh and what it is you're attending to. And so there is separation of a very rarefied kind. With practice, that kind of sense of being an observer and separate from the experience that you're observing starts to wither away. And there's just clear seeing. Now we've all had our moments. There are moments when that kind of center from which we live, including from which we observe, we even have a phrase, that person's very centered, that person's not centered. And I think it's very helpful to get centered. And then at a certain point, Real centered means even letting go of what you've constructed as a center. And so, regular practice, we're not doing anything resembling choiceless awareness yet. To begin with is, is forging an instrument that can see clearly, a calm and steady mind that is able to really take a look at what's happening. Little by little, the range of what it can see, what it can allow to appear in its living room, in its space, and observe, starts to become extended. We become more acquainted with ourselves in just ordinary language. We get to know our body. We get to know our mind. Even following the breath, although it's not officially self-knowing, how can you not learn about yourself in the process of doing that? And then... One step further, the Buddha suggests, now that you have a, a serviceable quality of attention, now that you're 
have had more experience with some difficult states of mind, fear, loneliness. You've seen that it is workable, that it is possible to get up close to them, to observe them. Begin to now see even more deeply into their nature. Don't get caught in the content of what you're seeing. Begin to see that independent of how highly charged or dull or boring or whatever the you would evaluate the event that you're looking at, the object you're looking at, it's impermanent. It comes and it goes, and it belongs to no one. It lacks self. And so we begin to see that the same materials of mind and body are examined that we may have looked at the first day we began to practice. But now there's a, a seeing more deeply into their nature, this process that's independent of content. And one uh, derivative of the law of impermanence, which is central to the Buddhist teaching, uh, central to life, to understand it, is uncertainty. When you're saying that everything is changing, you're also saying that everything is uncertain. And the training helps you uh, make peace with this uncertainty, because it doesn't go away, because impermanence doesn't go away. Things do keep changing. And they don't necessarily change on schedule. Now, when you move to choiceless awareness, where I would say to do it fruitfully, uh, you don't have to wait until you're perfect. Uh, but it's helpful if there is some foundation along the lines that I've just suggested, some experience. Everyone's welcome to dive in, you know, but. Obviously, some foundation of this sort would make the, the chances of your being able to practice choicelessly uh, be something that uh, could be fruitful, that could enable you to flower as a person. Now, in choiceless awareness, it isn't a specific contemplation. Let's say if you set up as a contemplation the breath, well, you have an, it's nice. Everything's changing, but at least, well, I've set the breath. That's what I'm going to examine. Or maybe it's bodily feelings. So you've stabilized the setting a, a bit. That's what a contemplation is. I'm contemplating death, or I'm contemplating uh, feelings. I'm contemplating different mind states. When you make it very specific, I'm contemplating sounds. But what happens when you move in choiceless awareness where you throw away the agenda, and you just sit, and the, the, what's asked of us is that clarity that we've been developing, but also the ability to be at home in the midst of this change, to not have anything particular that's supposed to be there, that we put there for our own contemplation, but to actually be with what life presents us with, to be with it until it's fully exhaled so that there's room for the next event to emerge and to be experienced thoroughly as we inhale it. Uh, I'm going to end this evening with a, a, uh, a Dharma song. I'm not going to sing, don't worry. Over the years, I've 
always read this song because I found it to be extraordinarily beautiful and inspiring and helpful. Uh, and this time I'm going to say a few things about it. I've never commented on it, although in a way everything we're doing is a commentary on it. It's called Free and Easy, and, by, and it's by Lama Gendun Rinpoche. I'm just going to read it. See if you can get into the spirit of it, feel it. Uh, it's a spontaneous uh, utterance that comes out of the joy of the Dharma, the joy of clear seeing. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. I think this is good teaching for a hot day, too. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do nor undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment, uh, attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything and notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease, don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want and nothing missing. Ema ho. Maybe that's wow, something like that, I don't know. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. You'll all, there'll be copies uh, available. Have they already been given out? You already have them? Under the bulletin boards. And we'll say a few words about it uh, in subsequent evenings. Okay. Walking meditation.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.